Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be, will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back, Japan team. Uh, Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Oh God, your word is more precious than fine gold, sweeter than purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, would you send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love and truth would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we can help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, um, I began struggling with something, and I kind of stayed in a state of denial for a while <clears throat> until middle of last year. I'm like, oh, man, I need to get help. You see, I had a hard time reading. My eyes were getting bad. Um, I kept saying to myself, "Ha, ah, it's okay." I'm okay. I could read. And I was doing one of this a lot. And I'm like, I can't see. So I mustered enough courage to make an appointment with my optometrist and she checked out my eyes and she said, Paul, how old are you? And I told her my age. And she said, I think it's time. I think it's time for you to get progressive lenses. I'm like, what are those? They're like bifocals, but they don't have lines. I'm like, no. <laughs> All my life, or the most part of my life, I struggle with myopia, which is nearsightedness. I could see things close, but I couldn't see things far. But here I am, a um, little older, and now I have this thing called presbyopia, where I can't see things close <laughs> or far. <laughs> so I have these now. Um, if I didn't tell you, you, you can't tell because there are no lines and you wouldn't know that these are like, you know, multifocal lenses. So depending on where I look, if I look up, I can see things that are far. In the middle, then a little bit closer. But if I look down, then I can see things close. Praise the Lord for technology. So I picked up these pairs August 30th of last year, and I was really depressed. I was like, man, I'm officially old. 
I try to stay in that state of denial as long as I could. But you know, during our meetings when we we're reading Bible, like I was like I couldn't quite read, and it was getting getting embarrassing. And um, maybe some of you guys are wearing contacts now. Maybe you have LASIK surgery. Some of us are wearing glasses. But we all know someone who has the need for help. Um, good sight affects everything we do. Um, today we continue the sermon that I started last week on treasures in heaven where we examine the first three verses, verses 19 through 21. And today we're going to look deeper into verses 22 to 24 where Jesus continues to teach about what it means to store treasures in heaven. But now, moving from the analogy of laying up treasures, he uses our eyes and our body, our sight, and then masters and servants. Um, the passage, just to recap a little bit of what I um, shared last week, is contextualized where Jesus is talking and teaching his disciples in the midst of masses. And he's talking about the need for the disciples, those who follow Jesus, their righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Your righteousness has to be better. It can't be like theirs. And later on in the very passage, chapter three, 6, verse 33, Jesus, you know, after talking about really treasures, luxury, and surplus here, goes to talk about what we need and trusting Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Knowing that he will give you all you need. You see, the religious leaders of the days, the Pharisees, were really into the immediate return. They wanted the pauses of people. So when they prayed, when they fasted, when they gave, they received the acclamation, the applause of the people when they saw it. But you know what Jesus taught right before the passage that we read? Don't do it for other people's recognition. Do it in secret so that the Heavenly Father will see you when you're doing it in secret, when you're praying in secret, when you're giving in secret, when you're fasting in secret. Because when he does see you in secret, he will give you the future reward. And it's in that context that we saw and we read today's passage that Kenny read. The Pharisees, their hearts, perhaps like our hearts, if we're honest, they were covetous heart. They were greedy for gain. In Luke 16, Pharisees are described as lovers of money, as covetous people. And let's be honest, and I mentioned this last week too, out of the Ten Commandments that God gave, starting with the, the warning against having idolatry in our lives, other two is about not stealing other people's stuff. And the last one that God warns us is don't covet your neighbor's stuff. We, in our sinful state as Song talked about the original sinful nature because of what Adam did. We all have this sinful nature. We are prone to covet other people's stuff. 
Now, Jesus does not give a categorical rejection of wealth and money, but he clearly gives us warning after warning. Jesus talks about money and wealth and possession a lot. So when we surrender to God, we need to redirect our lives and enthrone Christ and dethrone our human tendency of placing mammon, you might have heard old days when you read the Bible, in today's translation, money, or in other translation, wealth. You take that down and you enthrone Christ where he rightly belongs. Last week, you talked about what it means to store treasures in heaven. That we think about our interest, but future gain, future security, that we store up treasures in heaven where, because the earth is volatile, but heaven is totally insured by God. And when Christ returns, the economy of the earth will be totally changed and no longer. So we, today, we look at these second and third metaphors, and let's, I'm going to read verses 22 and 23 again. The scripture, Jesus teaches us, the eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Just as in verses 19 through 20, there is um, don't store treasure on earth, but instead, because moth and other things will eat it, but instead store in heaven where nothing will. You have that kind of parallel here, verses 22 and 23, but instead of heart and treasure, here we see eye and body. And before Jesus is commanding, it's like, don't store, but instead lay up and store in heaven. Here it's just matter-of-factly. These are indicative. These are just realities. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have healthy eyes, your whole body will be full of light. And vice versa, if your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. In ancient days, um, eyes were considered as this kind of entrance, kind of like a lamp, the um, language of lamp is used, that lamps serve to project light into the body. So imagine your body is like a room or a house, and your eyes are a lamp. That the, meta, the language of lamp is used, but it kind of functions like a window that allows light to enter the body, Right? So the purpose of the eye is to illuminate the room, the light, the body. And if the light comes in clearly and well, then the body is full of light. light eyes serve as a source of light in that sense. And, you know, before service, I took time to clean my lenses because there was, like, stuff on it. And when the lenses, when the eyes are clean... And if there are no debris or other things, light has an easier time entering, and I can see better, and we can see better. But if they're like, you know, covered with dirt and, you know, baby food or even just grease or whatever else I touch, fingerprints even, then the light won't be able to go through well, and I won't be able to see as well. Um, so in today's passage, in ESV, um, the word healthy is used. Healthy eyes versus bad eyes, okay? And um, often 
the, the healthy eye is, many interpreters consider healthy eyes and see in contrast to evil eyes. So if you're reading the Bible in Jesus' days, um, they will be getting their hands on what they call Septuagint, which is the Greek Testament of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, when you see evil eyes, bad eyes, it's often related as um, stinginess. You're not generous. So people with uh, bad eyes uh, or evil eyes, um, as the word here, will be considered stingy instead of being gracious and um, liberal in their giving. Um, so um, bad eyes, people with bad eyes, you know, can't see, inside is dark, and it, is, it makes sense in some ways to consider those who are miserly in their living are not generous, um, have darkness in them because they, they don't have the spiritual eyes. Um, so there's this generous attitude with this healthy eyes, and it seems to be fitting, especially when we consider the previous three verses, right? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. Um, however, another way, and it's, it's the way that I think dual meanings but especially, I think, the more you think about the word that's translated as healthy, it literally is translated as single or simple. It's not usually used with eyesight, so it is interesting. So, uh, but if you take it for what it means in context of what comes before, but especially what comes after, when Jesus talks about you can't serve both what? God and money. You can't serve both God and mammon or wealth. There's a focus on that singularity. You can't follow two masters. You can only follow one. I think when Jesus is talking about this healthy eyes, this singleness of eyes that is being compared to evil eyes or bad eyes as it's often um, contrasted, it's talking about the good good eye that is fixed on God. Unwaving gaze, clarity of vision for the kingdom of God and his purpose. The result is the entire person is full of light. Because he or she can see the light coming through and God's revelation and God's purity is at work in their life in contrast to the one who's full of darkness where they can't see with that clarity and they don't have that singleness of vision. They, they think they can pursue both when in reality we can't serve two masters. There is no confusion in our vision. So when I first tried to get used to these glasses, the doctor told me, when you see things that are far, you got to look up, and when you get close, follow your nose um, to read. It took me a while. It's like things were blurry because I was still trying to read close things with my top that's meant for things that are far, and then, you know, But Christ is talking about that kind of singleness of vision with that kind of clarity 
that enables us to not compromise, that sees the kingdom and his righteousness for what it is. You know, Jesus talks a lot about blindness in the Bible. Gospel of Matthew and other gospels too. Jesus talks a lot about those who think they can see but are spiritually blind. Jesus heals blind people a lot. And the Pharisees, especially around, they don't recognize, while they have the physical ability to see, they're spiritually blind and they cannot recognize the need to have their spiritual sight restored. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing those verses. I once was blind, but now I see. My, uh, I have some relatives who are getting some cataract eye surgery, I think, this week. Um, and I have another relative who waited too long. She waited years. We try to convince her, your eyes are bad. Your doctor is saying your eyes are bad. You should get your surgery soon. But she kept on saying, no, I don't need it. I don't need it. Kind of like, you know, me being in state of denial. Like, I'm not that old. I don't need bifocals. I don't need it. I don't need it. And then eventually, because, she, you know, she waited so long, even after the surgery, damage was done. And one of her eyes is basically blind. Um, but here's the reality of the situation. It's not that, you know, I'm, you know, nearsighted or, excuse me, you know, I can see a little bit. Right now with my glasses, I'm kind of, everything here is blurry. Um, I see certain things. I see treasures in heaven because they're so big. But I can see even without my glasses. But the reality of our human condition, as we talked about and learned from the catechism today, is that it's not that we are in need of a little correction. The reality of our human predicament because of original sin is that we are spiritually blind. It's not that I need to get a pair of spiritual glasses. I mean, I, I can kind of see God, but I need God to give me a little bit of a corrective lens to see him clearly. No, we are totally blind and we need just total gift of healing to see what we cannot see at all. Why does Jesus talk about blindness? Why does Jesus continue to heal blind people, point out, both the hypocrisy and the lack of awareness of these religious leaders who though they can physically see, they don't recognize that they are spiritually blind and in desperate, absolute need of spiritual sight. Do we, do you see spiritual things clearly? It's not something that you can muster. It's not something that I can get help from anyone, even ourselves. It is only something that Jesus can give. And it's this Jesus who commands us, demands us, and expects us to give him that absolute focus of looking at him and his kingdom 
and eternity. Not to be double-sided or confused, but singleness of purpose and fidelity to him. And it's this Jesus who says, following in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In Old King James, mammon, or in other translations, wealth. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and wealth. Only one. Now here, if you think about it, we just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus who came to set us free from bondage of sin and death. And the irony and the insult it would be for us to come to God, trust in him and receive that freedom only to go to another kind of slavery, to slavery in mammon, wealth and money, to enthrone wealth and luxury instead of Christ. When Jesus talks about masters, he's not talking about employers. I mean, you can have multiple employers, but you can't have multiple masters who own you. This isn't the language of slave ownership, not the way we think of in North American history, um, but it is really talking about that you can't have, you can't be a slave to two masters. You can only have one exclusive loyalty and service. The total commitment You can only give to one. Because you know what? Between God and wealth, between God and mammon, between God and money, they fundamentally have a different way of teachings about reality. How we are used as servants of God and money, how we serve are fundamentally different. And here's the kicker been talking about last week, how we are rewarded are fundamentally different. Money, mammon, wealth rewards us for now, earth, and that's it. God rewards us for eternity, for that future. That's why he told us to lay up treasures not on earth where Rust can eat it or thieves can steal it, but lay up treasures in heaven where it's guaranteed to be secure. Jesus calls for this undivided loyalty to himself. And Jesus talks, he uses his idiom, a Semitic idiom of love and hate. And the point isn't to say you literally are called to hate So if you think about it, the point is to emphasize the absolute preference over the other. Jesus talks about, in the similar language in Luke 14, where if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, and yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But later on, we also know that we are called to honor your parents with integrity, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So he's not talking about actual hatred in itself, but he's talking about the best love. Where is your first allegiance? That's what he's asking for. That's what he's expecting. 
He wants that to be directed to our God the Father who demonstrated his love for us through his Son. He does not want second place. He wants to be enthroned. And it is during our crisis where our true allegiance kind of leaks out, right? It gets sorted out because you have to choose one or the other because there will come a time in those crises in life where you have to choose one over the other and that will show whom we truly serve. Mammon, um, this uh, Hebrew root word, um, it's actually a uh, neutral word, originally, and you know Jesus even uses the deceitment. No, excuse me, unrighteous mammon, unrighteous wealth, in contrast to I guess regular wealth or mammon. Um, originally, it meant as something where um, people would give their wealth to a banker to entrust them to uh, you know um, entrust it to the banker. So it's something of value that you would entrust to someone else to hold on to it probably usually back in those days for an interest. But eventually came to change uh, where um, it became something where people put their trust. It's something that we are supposed to be entrusting to someone else, but eventually it came to mean something we would trust. You see, God entrusted us with his riches for us to steward. But the irony behind our human sinful nature with the original sin and everything else, is that what he has entrusted to us, we somehow, somewhere, begin to trust it more than the one who gave. Jesus teaches us when he talks about the parable of the sower, he warns us against the deceitfulness of wealth, choking the word, preventing the word from bearing fruit. It is a real thing. It's a real challenge, real threat in our discipleship. I may piously, spiritually, verbally affirm my priority in serving God, but honestly, how I actually spend the resources and the money that God has given me shows most accurately where my true priorities are. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is known to have told the story of a farmer who celebrates and comes to his wife and says, honey, I have great news. Our um, best cow gave birth to two calves. One's red, one's white. Praise the Lord. You know what? I have been led to the Lord, led of the Lord to dedicate one of the calves to him. We'll raise them both together, and then when the time comes to sell them, we'll keep the proceeds from, the one, that, from one calf, and we'll give the proceeds um, that comes from the other to the Lord's work. And his wife asked, well, which calf is dedicated to the Lord? And he's like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, no need to decide now. We'll treat them both equally, and then when the time comes, we'll, we'll sell as, as needed. And several months pass, and the husband enters the kitchen looking really sad and miserable. And, you know, the wife asks, what's wrong? What's wrong? And the husband says, I got bad news for you, honey. The Lord's calf died. And it's like, how do you know it was the Lord's calf? 
well, you know, um, I'd always determined that it was the white one. Um, and the white one died. But obviously, you know, this wasn't something that was clearly communicated when it happened or before it happened. Our original sinful nature, because of what Adam and Eve did, affects, affects us. And our natural bent with that impact of original sin is that it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Unless we are absolutely clear about our service to him. I've talked about this many times, but there's no bigger, more important question than a question of ownership. Who owns your possessions? Either God owns it, and we are serving him, or the possessions, they own us, and we serve it. They operate with different set of rules, different set of expectations, and clearly different set of rewards. Afflictions are a great trial, but there's no trial, no true test like prosperity, Spurgeon said, and I think it's so true. When afflictions come our way and we struggle, um, sure, some do stray away, but many turn to God, trust in the Lord, and their faith strengthens. But far more in proportion have fallen because of prosperity, because of wealth. Brothers and sisters, let us be honest and come before God humbly. Richard Baxter said this long, long ago. He, I don't know if he wore bifocals back in those days, but he said, both believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, they both want heaven. But the believer prefers heaven above earth, whereas the unbeliever only prefers heaven over hell. Some want heaven, but only as plan B, because we love the earth so much. Then the heaven is not going to be waiting. True disciple, we are called to look forward to and prefer heaven over earth. I have to confess, when I first started my spiritual journey, my response was, I just didn't want to go to hell. Do we just simply not want to go to hell and prefer perhaps to stay on earth as long as we can? Or are we like the disciple that Jesus is challenging us to grow to, for the, our righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees where we seek heaven more than the earth? Let me close with this story of Alfred Nobel I think it was around 1888 
when um, the French newspaper published his obituary. You see, actually, his brother died, but they thought he died, and they published this article uh, in the newspaper saying, the merchant of death is dead. And they describe how um, Alfred gotten his riches by helping people kill one another. He was really shook up, so disturbed by this appraisal of his life, although he was still alive, um, he decided to change the legacy. He didn't want to be remembered as such. So as many of you guys know, at that juncture of discovery and reality check, he donated $9 million to fund awards for people whose work benefited humanity. And thus began the Nobel Prizes. He had a rare opportunity to assess his life. And I talked about this last week too. We know from what Jesus has taught us how life will end, how when he returns, what will ultimately happen. The economy of the world versus the economy of God. When he returns and judges both the living and the dead as we recite week after week, how will we be remembered? Will we be remembered as those who have simply just accumulated treasures on earth? Or as those who knowing that our Heavenly Father backs up whatever we deposit into eternity for his kingdom work, where no moth will eat it, no thieves can break it. We have stored up treasures so that we get rewarded later when we see him. What will God remember us for, brothers and sisters? I want to invite you to join me as we continue to grow and mature and learn, examine what it is that we are looking at. Are we focused in that single thing, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Let us pray. Lord God, we hereby dare to acknowledge your ownership of us and all our money, all our possessions, and everything else that we've ever imagined belong to us, including our family, the loved ones, our work, our relationships, our platforms that you have entrusted us to steward. Instead of seeing ourselves as the ultimate recipient where it ends with us, Lord, we want to trust you. We want to see ourselves as a mere delivery boys or girls, enjoying what you intend us to keep, but releasing, distributing what you intend us to release to elsewhere. Lord, from this point forward, we, we want to, we need to, we long to think of these assets as yours, to do as 
you wish. We will do our utmost to ask you and to prayerfully consider how you wish us to invest your assets to further your kingdom for your glory, for your approval. And in doing so, Lord, we realize we will surrender certain temporary earthly treasures, but at the end, gain and exchange eternal treasures as we also experience increased perspective of eternity and decreased anxiety as we trust you and seek you. Lord, we pray for your kingdom and for your righteousness to be the focus of our spiritual eyes. We pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord.